has a bad day at the office, everyone who works in an office, that is. Not that the office itself is the problem. Taxi drivers, they're gonna have bad days in the taxi. Ranch hands, they're gonna have bad days at the ranch. Halal butchers, they're gonna have bad days in the... What I'm trying to say is, without bad days, there are no good days. Like, there could be no light without darkness, no happiness without sadness, no yin without... In short, you put on that tie, you sit in that swivel chair, you fill out that W-4, there are going to be bad days. I know this. I accept this. But what I don't accept is, how come when the average guy, average gal, has a bad day at the office, worst case scenario is the internet goes down, or the coffee machine breaks, or a Microsoft PowerPoint file gets corrupted, whereas my bad days, take today for instance, 9am, I'm in the portable trailer, roofs leaking, oscillating fans going, damp paperwork's fluttering this way and that, and suddenly in bursts Eddie the torch swallower, kerosene dripping from his lips, informing me that the Bengal tiger got loose again, and long story short, I'm gonna have to find replacements ASAP for two of our unpaid interns. Like I have the time for that. And then not five minutes go by, and Marty Silverstein from Payroll waltzes in, wagging his finger sternly, telling me it was an intern who left the tiger's cage wide open, and that management says I have 24 hours to develop a mandatory intern training course in Big Cat Safety, and that I should thank my lucky stars no paid employees got mauled, because it would have sent our workers' comp premiums through the roof. 24 hours, my ass. I have a date tonight romantic dinner at Crouton Palace by the interstate, and I'll be damned if Big Cat Safety is going to stand between me and those sweet, luscious, perfect. But then, just as soon as Marty leaves, after ordering me to keep the double intern mauling on the DL, in comes my darling Petra, queen of the flying trapeze, saying she can't see me anymore, that she can no longer handle the lies, the secrecy, that every time she triple somersaults through the air to her husband and acrobatic partner Sergey, she wonders if he knows, if he's going to flub the catch, if he's vindictively going to let her plunge 40 feet to her death, and before I can utter a single word of protest, she's gone, and I'm alone in the trailer, and the oscillating fan blows a post-it note that says, the three R's of success, what are they? my face, and it's only 9.15, and I haven't even had my first cup of coffee. So what I'm saying is, yes, there are going to be bad days, and yes, there's no gain without pain, and yes, sometimes life has to knock you down before God can lift you up, according to Pastor Mike, the circus chaplain. But lately, I get the feeling that God, in his infinite mystery, has been repeatedly extending his hand, only to pull it back at the last possible instant, so that he and Jesus and some nearby slapstick-loving angels can share a good chuckle as I fall, once again, flat on my face.
Director of Interns for the Bumble and Billingham Three Ring Discount Circus. As of June 07, technically we're only a two-ring circus. The third ring we rent out to a nearby funeral home for surplus cadaver storage. But for reasons of nostalgia and brand consistency, we remain a three-ring circus, at least in name. I'm a member of the eponymous Billingham family of southern Wisconsin, who in the late 1800s joined forces with Pennsylvania's Bumbles to create the most thrilling three-ring traveling spectacular the Great Lakes region had ever known. But I am also adopted. My mother, Martha Billingham, abandoned all hope for childbirth after suffering two miscarriages, a biological disappointment which, among relatives who proudly claim to have the circus in their blood, has unfortunately secured me a rather low position on the familial totem pole. As it turns out, being a Saito Billingham is nothing like being a Saito three-ring circus. In the case of the circus, my family fully expects to reverse our bad fortune, to rest that third ring away from the funeral home, to once more recapture the circus's fated glory. But in my case, nothing can make me a real Billingham, and so instead, I am relegated to lower management. Instead, I work out of a leaky trailer I share with Big Tony, the circus's manure coordinator. Instead, I supervise enterprising yet gullible college students who have been duped into performing the circus's most menial tasks without receiving any monetary compensation, or when they are mauled by a ferocious wild animal, workers' compensation. Instead, I am the director of interns. circus's heyday, there were no interns. Instead, there were over a thousand itinerant workers who traveled with the circus from town to town across the vast corn-fed swath of the Midwest and were paid mostly in food, three square meals a day, pancakes and eggs for breakfast, sandwiches and fresh fruit for lunch, hamburger, pork chops, and rib roast for dinner with ice cream and cherry pie for dessert. Not so bad considering many of the circus's golden years were during the dust-choked privation of the Great Depression. But now, circa 2010, the Great Depression 2.0, the circus's traveling days are over. We lease a small strip of undesirable land in between the funeral home, an electrical substation, and an erotic kosher deli. And so are the days of a thousand-man crew. The clowns all work in human resources. Yip Yip the dog-faced boy does our marketing. Marty Silverstein from Payroll is also a part-time lion tamer. And as for the interns, fresh-faced, well-referenced, deans listed, do they get their three square meals a day? Oatmeal, sheet cake, and meat and potatoes prepared and served gratis, as in days of yore, in the circus cookhouse? Like hell they do. 
they pay a king's ransom at the vending machines outside the camel stables like the rest of us do, or else they cross the highway and order from the counter at the erotic kosher deli, where, if they don't mind eating sandwiches shaped like male genitalia, pastrami on rye is only $4.99. Um, Mr. Billingham, sir? Says a voice, faintly, outside my trailer door. The voice belongs to Davis, the most polite and least competent of my eleven interns. Come in, Davis, I say, wearily, as the oscillating fan blows away a post-it note that says, Important, in big block letters, and nothing else. Johnny the Brick Colucci, the circus's current manager, a short, stout, humorless man who is in no way related to any Billingham or Bumble, although rumor has it he's been getting a bit genealogical with some of the Bumble wives. Like most circuses, ours had always been a nepotocracy, power handed from Billingham to Billingham, from Bumble to Bumble. But after a half-decade of dwindling attendance, performer defections, and investigations by animal welfare groups and the IRS, the two families agreed it was time for a change, and so they brought aboard Johnny the Brick in the late aughts, impressed with his glittering track record in the alternative on-site sewage industry. We expect Mr. Colucci to do for the circus what he did for alternative on-site sewage, said my great-uncle. Thaddeus Billingham, beamingly, at the poorly attended staff meeting when our new manager was first introduced. And indeed, he did. Within a week, over 40% of our staff was flushed away. The calliope player, the fire jugglers, two-thirds of the custodial staff, the barkers, the fortune teller, all but two of the riggers, the snake charmer, the bearded lady, every last one of the roustabouts, the sword swallowers, the what is it, Janine and Sales, all deemed to be inessential, to be disposable, to be waste. Sorry to bother you, Mr. Millingham, sir, says Davis, his hair and clothes damp from the outside drizzle. It's just I, uh... Please, I say, take a seat, make yourself comfortable. Davis looks around the cramped, cluttered trailer, nearly all floor space occupied by stacks of manila folders generated by Big Tony's manure coordination. But, um, sir, there's no, uh, chair, says Davis, almost apologetically. I know, I say, just a joke I like to make. Please continue standing uncomfortably in front of the door. house, he found himself with a leaner, less costly labor force, as was his intention, but he also found himself with a labor force bristling at what he called the new efficiencies. With the departure of the roustabouts, the manual laborers who performed all of the circus's least desirable tasks, someone had to do the circus's grunt work, 
and thus the tightrope walkers now had to erect their own rigging. The ringmaster had to set up and operate the Big Top's PA system. The clowns had to perform routine maintenance on the comically small car that, after the layoffs, actually accommodated the remaining clowns quite comfortably. The animal trainers had to spend half their day shoveling dung. At this time, I worked part-time in public relations, part-time in concessions, and part-time in sawdust. The misery of my co-workers was palpable. I saw Sergei, king of the flying trapeze, muttering Russian obscenities as he typed up a grammatically disastrous press release. I saw Yip Yip the dog-faced boy suffer multiple asthma attacks, sawdust caked an inch thick on his fur. I saw one Siamese twin assigned light clerical work, the other ordered to clean the baboon cage, both tasks unheeded as the twins instead googled two-headed Van Halen t-shirts on an office computer. I saw the strong man lift a funnel cake cart and hurl it at a customer who claimed she was given incorrect change. Johnny the Brick, heartless but no fool, knew he would have a mutiny on his hands if he didn't find someone else to do the circus's dirty work, but until the circus's finances improved, he simply couldn't afford to hire any more employees, not even at minimum wage. Volunteers were obviously one solution, but given the nature of the work, good luck finding any volunteers. After all, who in their right mind would want to hose down baboons and shovel dung and lug 50-pound sacks of sawdust for free? And then the answer hit him. College interns. So, Mr. Billingham, uh, I was wondering if you'd heard anything about the uh, maulings, says Davis, meekly. Maulings, I say, plain dumb. I have to be careful here. Marty Silverstein made it clear that the less people who know why I have to develop a mandatory training course on big cat safety within 24 hours, the better. Maulings, as in plural? Yeah, like I think two maulings, says Davis. See, I was talking to Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles told you this, I interrupt, that there were maulings? Uh, yeah, two maulings, he said that. And you believe a man who has a spherical nose with honking capabilities, I say, who enjoys hurling cream-based desserts, who looks like Jack Nicholson in Batman, who has a size 9 foot and wears a size 16 shoe. Well, now that you put it that way... Davis is a sweet kid. Not too bright, but sweet. He has a massive crush on one of his fellow interns, Cassandra, gets the goofiest grin whenever they're assigned the same task, no matter how undesirable it is. Yesterday it was administering camel enemas. He has the compact frame of a coxswain or horse jockey, the face of an 18-year-old choir boy, and a tendency to interpret any direction in the most incorrect way conceivably possible. He has tossed raw meat to office staff. He has delivered inter-office mail to a caged panther. He has somehow erected a sideshow tent upside down. So, um, Mr. Billingham? Says Davis. Yes, I say. Are you saying then that there's a chance that Sasha and Dexter didn't get mauled? Sasha and Dexter, I say. Yeah, Mr. Bojangles said that- God damn it, I mutter. 
Sasha and Dexter are my two best interns. Because if they were mauled, I was thinking we could, you know, make them a card, get everyone to sign it, have the clowns drive it over to the hospital in their Mini Cooper. Says Davis. No, no, I say. That won't be necessary. Sasha and Dexter are fine, I can assure you. Really? Because Mr. Bojangles... Look, Davis, I say solemnly. I didn't want to break it to you like this, but Sasha and Dexter... Sasha and Dexter have been voted off. Voted off? Says Davis, incredulous. Since when can we be voted off? That's the other thing I didn't want to break to you like this, I say. Now you can be voted off. contestants on a reality television show called Unpaid Interns. They think this because, one, I told them that they are, and two, I've ordered the clowns, sideshow freaks, and occasionally Wanda from public relations to take turns pretending to film them with broken or unloaded digital camcorders. Let me explain. When Johnny the Brick hypothesized that he could get overachieving college kids to do the circus's grunt work for free, he was only half correct. Sure, they would do it for free, for a few days, best case scenario, a few weeks, but eventually their higher educated minds deduced, correctly, that all their sawdust lugging would only lead to more sawdust lugging, that all their dung shoveling would only lead to more dung shoveling, and so they always left our internship program early, deciding their dignity was worth more than one to three college credits. Which, obviously, made my life hell, me being the director of interns, since my weekly turnover rate was like 90% on a good week. Sometimes I lost my entire staff before lunch. But then, one day, Fate interceded in the form of the popular television program, America Gets Kicked in the Groin. This was months ago, when America Gets Kicked in the Groin was still relatively new, when it was still possible to see the show's ex-beauty queen host on a Maxim cover or in a Peter Rapp commercial and not think, hey, it's that chick from America Gets Kicked in the Groin. The show's premise was simple. Viewers at home mailed in or digitally uploaded footage of themselves getting kicked or kicking others in the groin, and each week the show's producers selected the 30 or 40 choicest groin kickings to share with their national audience, with the show's beautiful host providing running commentary and lending repetitive groin injury and element of glamour with her form-fitting dresses and trend-setting hairstyles. The first time I saw the show, I was watching the portable TV in what used to be the fortune teller's tent, before the fortune teller got laid off and went back to school to become a registered nurse. Also present were Big Tony, Yip Yip the dog-faced boy, and Mr. Bojangles, the longest tenured of the clowns. 
we had been watching NBC's marital advice from the stars. An R&B singer was explaining how to save a troubled marriage with scented candles. But then marital advice from the stars went to commercial and Mr. Bojangles flipped through the channels, rapid fire, until happening across America gets kicked in the groin's host, introducing the next series of viewer submitted videos and wearing an inconceivably tight mini dress. Now ain't she a tasty slice of whipped cream pie, said Mr. Bojangles. I'd surely let her into my big top if you get my drift, said Yip Yip, the dog faced boy. Oh, like she'd ever want your hairy ass, said Big Tony, devouring a knockwurst from the erotic kosher deli. Yip Yip's dog face darkened. I can shave, you know. And I can adopt healthy dietary habits and daily regimen of fitness and exercise. But it don't mean... What the hell? The object of Mr. Bojangles and Yip Yip's lust had vanished and had been replaced by shaky amateur footage of a teenager kicking his friend in the groin in the foyer of a suburban shopping mall. Next... A college student kicked his roommate in the groin during the University of South Florida's spring commencement. Next, an actor portraying Nathan Detroit in a regional theater production of Guys and Dolls kicked Sky Masterson in the groin during the final chorus of Luck Be a Lady. Next, a small child kicked his father in the groin at a cousin's first communion as the child's mother, holding the camera, laughed and laughed and laughed. What is this? said Mr. Bojangles. What happened to that pretty girl? We watched service personnel get kicked in the groin. We watched morning zoo radio personalities get kicked in the groin. We watched groin kickings administered to high school mascots, lounge singers, crossing guards, armed servicemen, hospital patients, mall santas, low-level politicians, clergy, Sometimes, the people getting kicked in the groin did not look pleased, their hands clutching their privates, their bodies doubled over, their faces contorted with pain. But other times, they remained good sports, managing, while lying incapacitated on the ground, to flash the camera a weak smile, choke out a hello to their parents or significant other, form their quivering fist, to a thumbs up. Sweet Jesus, some folks will do just about anything to get themselves on television. And that's when I came up with the idea for the fictional reality TV show, Unpaid Interns. television show. Are you outgoing? Are you capable of performing strenuous manual labor? Do you have the want, desire, and competitive edge to vie for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change your life forever? Over 100 people responded to my post. Of these 100 people, 30 were Nigerian princes offering me millions of dollars in exchange for my bank information. That left 70. Of these 70, 
15 promised me extravagant lottery winnings if I wired them $5,000 via Western Union. That left 55. Of these 55, five wrote me back in all caps. That left 50. I invited these 50 to a casting call the following morning in what used to be the Sword Swallower's trailer before the Sword Swallower got laid off and went into porn. 45 showed up. The other five sent me emails that promised to either rekindle fire of love or make your love motor powerful. My love motor being the least of my problems, I politely declined their offers. The 45 people who lined up outside the Sword Swallower's trailer the next day weren't just college students or recent graduates like my other interns had been. Offered the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to appear on television, these prospective interns ranged in age from 18 to 73, an occupation from retiree to swimsuit model to rug merchant, in hairstyle from ponytail to comb-over to mullet. Mr. Bojangles was right. Some folks would do just about anything to get themselves on television. I had stay-at-home moms telling me they'd have no problem putting in 50-hour weeks in the camel stalls. I had fresh-faced teens assuring me, absolutely, they were cool with 9-6s shoveling manure. I had a withered septuagenarian who could barely climb the two steps into the trailer, vehemently arguing that he could lift a hundred-pound sack of sawdust above his own head, and woe to anyone foolish enough to claim otherwise. In the end, I selected 11 interns. My selection criteria were 1. The contestants' abilities to perform repetitive manual tasks, and 2. The degree to which I would hate myself for conning them into working at the circus for free. Thus, I did not choose the stay-at-home moms, the septuagenarians, did not deprive small children of their mothers or the elderly of their retirements. I did not choose the laid-off construction workers or the pregnant teenagers living on welfare. I did not choose the man dying of pancreatic cancer who said that appearing on television had always been his secret dream. I chose, essentially, the same kind of people who had interned with us before. College-age kids, kids still living with their parents, kids who, despite their uncompensated labor, would presumably still have a roof over their heads, macaroni and cheese on their plates, a dinged-up but mostly functional Honda Civic available to perform circus errands, if needed. But whereas these kinds of kids had always quit within days before, the prospective 20-somethings in the Sword Swallower's trailer assured me that they were in this for the long haul, that they were up for the challenge, that they had the want, desire, and competitive edge to vie for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change their lives forever. Um, Mr. Billingham? Says Davis. Yes, I say. What happens when you're voted off? What do you mean? Like, where do you go? What do you do? Well, Davis, you go back to your normal life. Normal life? Yeah, like whatever it was you were doing before you joined the cast of unpaid interns. There's a pause. And then what? Um, I say. I don't want to be voted off. Says Davis, his eyes tearing up. Davis. I'm not ready. They can't vote me off. They just can't. I... Davis, I say. What about Cassandra? 
Are they going to vote her off too? I swear to God, Mr. Billingham, if they vote off Cassandra, I'll... I'll... Davis. And who is they, anyway? What do they know about me? What do they know about unpaid circus internships? What do they know about hauling 50-pound sacks of- Davis, shouldn't you- Please, God, don't let them vote me off. Blubbers Davis, falling to his knees. I'll go to the circus chapel every Sunday. I'll stop using your name in vain. I'll stop having impure thoughts. I tithe, but, you know, I'm an unpaid intern. I mean, 10% of zero is zero. Surely you don't expect me to. Okay, I could borrow some money from my mom, but- Davis, I shout. That camel dung's not gonna shovel itself. Did I feel bad, duping my 11 interns, seeing them hug each other and scream and sprint around the circus grounds, laughing and whooping after I told them they had made the cut as the rejected elderly welfare recipients and stay-at-home moms banged their heads against the trailer siding and wept? Of course I did. I'm no saint, but I'm no monster either. But the thing is, in this life, you're either a duper or you're the duped. My great-great-grandfather, Peregrine Billiam, said that. He also said that a microcephalic dwarf he taught to play the five-string banjo was the missing link between primates and humans. He also said that his own half-paralyzed grandfather was the 160-year-old horseshoes partner of Thomas Jefferson. He also never had to perform clerical work in a leaky portable trailer. He also was never considered a biological disappointment by his family members. He also slept with many attractive vaudeville actresses and died an extremely wealthy man. So I chose my 11. So Mr. Bojangles searched for still intact video cameras in the local scrapyards. So the stay-at-home moms thumped their heads against the sword swallower's trailer again and again, wailed and cursed and wept. Yes, sir. Right away, Mr. Billingham, sir. So the thrilling first season of Unpaid Interns was officially underway.
tour coordinator stumbles inelegantly into our shared trailer. Julian. He slurs. You ever have an improvised explosive daiquiri? No, I say. Okay, my advice is don't. He says, right before passing out onto a pile of manila folders. The last few years have been hard on Big Tony. Sure, the last few years have been hard on everyone at the circus, but Big Tony, in particular, has good reason to be passed out on manila folders at 9.45 a.m. For one thing, a few years back, Big Tony wasn't even Big Tony. He was just Tony, the elephant trainer, weighed a respectable 180, dated the cutest of the fire jugglers, enjoyed a legendary species-transcending friendship with the circus's star elephant, Princess. But then Johnny the Brick came aboard, and with a cold pragmatism and fealty to the bottom line that had made him a titan of alternative on-site sewage disposal, he took one look at the wild menagerie's projected budget and axed the elephant, snake, bear, rhinoceros, zebra, hyena, giraffe, and gray ape programs in one fell swoop. The only animals spared were the camels, horses, big cats, and monkeys, who, after being trained to perform basic clerical tasks, replaced all but one of the circus's administrative assistants. Unlike Tony's fire-juggling girlfriend, Tony didn't get the boot. A position opened up for him in manure coordination. But with his beloved princess gone, with his laid-off girlfriend, who enlisted in the army, gone, with the career to which he had devoted his entire adult life, gone, a quote-unquote promotion to manure coordinator seemed like a pretty empty consolation. So Tony, unsure of how else to handle his own private Armageddon, let himself go, ate and drank away his pain, began the swift transformation into Big Tony. Ho-hos, ding-dongs, and moon pies from the circus vending machines, brisket, sauerkraut, and phallic broiled liver from the erotic kosher deli, Big Macs, Whoppers, Sliders, Whataburgers, Baconators, allegiance not to brand, but to calorie count, to numerically designated meal deals, to the mass-produced beef patty, lagers, ales, brandies, boxed wines, IPAs, 40s, stouts, drinks named after workmen's tools, drinks named after sexual acts, drinks named after high-powered explosives. I liked Tony, and I like Big Tony too, but Big Tony's propensity for impaired and or altered states has not been conducive to a productive work environment. For instance, my wastebasket is covered with post-it notes that say, this is a wastebasket in bold black sharpie, but Big Tony, at least twice a week, still sees that wastebasket after emerging from a whiskey blackout and thinks, gratefully, urinal. But what am I gonna do? Does the man really have anything worth staying sober or shedding 200 pounds for? Pastor Mike, who, in addition to his clerical duties, oversees the circus chapter of AA, would argue, yes, of course he does, 
For who can know what special purpose God has in store for his creations? But I look at Big Tony during the rare moments when he's not gorged or hammered. I look at him gazing mournfully at the ceramic babar figurine his ex-girlfriend had given him, at the 3x5 glossy of princess he keeps framed on his desk, and I see a man who has been stripped of everything good and decent and true in his life. Because what special purpose has God and Johnny the Brick left him with, really? The generation of piles and piles of manila folders, some dated, some not, some alphabetized, some not, some color-coded, some not, all labeled manure. Big Tony's out cold on archived paperwork and snoring fit to wake the dead. So seeing as how there's no way I'm going to get anything done in my office, I leave the trailer and scout for a more suitable location to tackle the day's agenda. I'm hoping maybe no one's watching TV in what was once the fortune teller's tent. No custodians are selling dope in what used to be the elephant pen. No clowns are sleeping off hangovers in what used to be the bearded lady's trailer. Outside my trailer, I encounter two funeral home employees, Paul and Dixie, carrying a cadaver to the Big Top's rented-out third ring for storage in one of the ring's many modular mortuary refrigerators. I ask them how business is, and Dixie says, killer. They ask me how business is, and I say, beats working for peanuts. These are just two of the many circus and mortuary jokes that we enjoy. Since the Big Top's on the way to the fortune teller's tent and the bearded lady's trailer, the two nearest places where I might be able to develop a big cat safety training course in peace, quiet, and shade, I follow Paul and Dixie in the body-bagged corpse they're paid good money to carry. We walk past the circus's few remaining clowns and the two remaining rickers and the scant remaining custodians and no one gives the human-sized black bag a second glance. We walk past some circus patrons, a mother and her young son, and the son points at the corpse and says, Mommy, what's that? I wave. Dixie spits in the dirt. Paul flashes her a big grin and then starts to tell me and Dixie about his blind date last night at Crouton Palace by the interstate as the mother stares at the body bag, horrified, and covers her son's eyes with her quivering hands. So, you know, she's looking good, I'm looking good, Crouton Palace is hopping, and the first minute or so goes smooth as a breeze, says Paul. But then, of course, she asked me what I do for a living. Oh, no, says Dixie. So I said the dreaded, I work for a funeral home. And the thing is, she's not immediately put off, like a lot of chicks are. She actually seems kind of interested. Raises an eyebrow, scoots forward in a boot seat. Oh, really, she says. So you're a funeral director? Oh, no. Right. So I say, no, I'm a funeral assistant. Then her old face kind of deflates. Oh, she says. So are you like an apprentice then? And I say, not exactly. I'm more like, you know, an assistant. She asks, you know, what's the difference between an apprentice and an assistant? And I tell her. And halfway into my response, I can tell she's barely paying attention to anything I'm saying. 
do you need a degree to be a funeral assistant? She says kind of snottily, and I say, yeah, you need a high school diploma or a GED. And she says, those aren't degrees, those are diplomas. And I say, not degrees, what the hell do you think the D in GED stands for? And she's like, diploma, and I'm like, are you sure? And she's like, I'm sure. Well, what's the big difference between a degree and a diploma, I say. And she says, if you had a degree, you wouldn't have to ask me that. Oh, no. And you want to know what really irks me? Guess what she does for a living? She's an administrative assistant. Administrative assistant. I say to her, so you're a secretary? And she says, no, I am an administrative assistant. Oh, well, that's just rich. Isn't a secretary and administrative assistant the same thing? I say, and she says, no, a secretary connotes a position with more limited professional duties and responsibilities. I am an integral component of nearly every facet of my department's operations. Without me, the entire office would not be able to function. I am an administrative assistant. At this point, our waitress brings us our complimentary croutons, but I'm too furious to eat. Well, what the hell do you think I am, I say? Do you think those caskets carry themselves? That those hearses drive themselves? That those flowers arrange themselves? That all that spilled embalming fluid just magically disappears from the funeral home's tiled floor? How am I not an integral component of my department's operations? And she says, but couldn't pretty much anyone do your job? And I say, no. And I say, couldn't pretty much anyone do your job? And she says, no way. So then we just, you know, we stare at each other silently the rest of the night. Do we each pay for our own dinners and each go home to our own apartments? You ate those croutons, though, eventually, right? Says Dixie. Are you kidding? Of course I ate those croutons. Crouton Palace croutons are rule, man. The three of us, four if you count the corpse, reach the Big Top's entrance, and I give the cadaver transport bag a few farewell taps and wish Paul and Dixie a pleasant rest of their day. Paul and Dixie respond in kind. Have yourself a good one. Take her easy. And I wave goodbye and turn to head for the bearded lady's trailer and the fortune teller's tent. But then, as I'm walking away, I hear the love theme from Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture emanating from the PA speakers inside. That unmistakable melody, those lush woodwinds, horns, and strings. And in the context of the Bumble and Billingham three-ring discount circus, this can only mean one thing. My darling Petra, queen of the flying trapeze, is practicing her routine. and her husband Sergei arrived at the circus three years ago. The first summer we rented our third ring out to the funeral home, the last summer before the hiring of Johnny the Brick. The bearded lady was still with us then, as was the sword swallower, as were the barkers and the fire jugglers and the fortune teller and Janine from sales and the roustabouts. Previously, our trapeze artists had been Hungarians the flying Ligettis, famous for both their aerial wizardry and their delicious homemade goulash. But they had run into trouble with the local authorities after drunkenly crashing a community theater performance of Jesus Christ Superstar and had been deported. A newspaper headline had read, Hungarians save Jesus from crucifixion, audience and furor. My uncle William, then the circus's talent scout, was instructed to find undeportable American nationals as replacements, 
But when his initial auditions of local and regional acrobats proved fruitless, he was given the okay to recruit foreigners so long as their work visas were in order. Enamored with the acrobatic prowess and work ethic of the Eastern European performers with whom he had worked, Uncle Will made an enticing, factually questionable job hosting on trapezejobs.com and had the multilingual clown Comrade Slappy repost the offer in Russian, Ukrainian, and Czech. Three days later, Petra and Sergei appeared outside his office in spandex and sequins. I was still working in public relations, concessions, and sawdust at this time. The first time I saw Petra, she was walking past my snow cone cart as a customer struggled to decide between blue syrup or red. I still cannot conceive of there existing a woman more beautiful. Petra, with her devastating cheekbones, her piercing Slavic eyes, her smile so warm and transformative, it may very well have been responsible for thawing the Cold War. Petra, with her skin-tight leotards, her muscular, bared legs, her slim, acrobatic body, surely the finest export to ever leave the Caucasus. The customer finally decided on blue, pulled out her wallet, offered me a $5 bill, but I ignored her. Instead, I watched Petra stride toward the big top in her sequined leotard, watched her until she disappeared behind the white and red striped canvas as the customer repeated, blue, blue, I said, blue, blue, blue. The end for me with Petra was English. Petra wanted to learn it, and I, conveniently, could teach it. At least, I assumed I could teach it. Certainly, Comrade Slappy, the multilingual clown who had translated Uncle Will's trapezejobs.com posting into Russian, would have been a much better English tutor. But this was a year after Petra's arrival, when Johnny the Brick had taken over and sent Comrade Slappy back to the Balkans. So, for better or worse, I was pretty much the best teacher Petra was going to get. I didn't really know how to teach someone English. I asked my mom if she still had any of the books she read to me when I was a little kid. Clifford, the Big Red Dog, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. But she said no. She'd long since sold them on eBay to help pay off her credit card debt. Instead, I used as my textbook the comics in the local newspaper. Comics were ideal because they had pictures. I could point to Garfield and say, cat, point to Jim and say, man, point to lasagna and say, lasagna. To my amazement, this Binday dot-based instruction seemed to work. Petra was a remarkably quick learner. In just a few weeks, she could read entire punchlines, could pronounce the name Funky Winkerbean, could quote extended passages of Marmaduke, Blondie, Hagar the Horrible. A red-faced Barney Google spit out ampersands, asterisks, and pound signs, and I taught her all applicable profanities. A supine Charlie Brown emitted a series of vowels, and I taught her all applicable cries of existential angst. With which strip did I teach her the word love? Beetle Bailey? Kathy? Rex Morgan, MD? I can't remember. 
With which strip did I teach her the words desire, want, need, sex, affair? She first kissed me after reading a Dennis the Menace strip. That much I remember. Dennis had launched a pebble at Mr. Wilson's head with a slingshot, and Petra said, He's Dennis. Why all the time he is menace? Why is Dennis a menace? I had never even questioned it before, and always accepted his menace as a given. The title is Dennis the Menace, therefore Dennis is a menace. Maybe because the word menace rhymes with his first name, I said. If he were Russian, maybe he would have turned out better. What's a Russian word that rhymes with Dennis? And then she kissed me. Just like that. We didn't sleep together until weeks later. Not until Dagwood had delayed his carpool seven times, until Charlie Brown had failed 13 simple tasks, until Rex Morgan, MD, had spent seven consecutive strips inexplicably shirtless. I never mentioned Sergey, not during our English lessons, not during our secret late night trysts, and Petra didn't mention him either. Why? Maybe she felt that the whole situation was just too complex to dissect with her still limited vocabulary. Sunday Funny's characters didn't use words like extramarital, like compulsivity, like transgression, hypersexuality, cuckoldry. They used words like blam, like pow, like zap, zing, whammo, ack. the big top entrance and watch Petra hurtle spectacularly through the air, 40 feet above the ground. Petra practices with a safety net, but performs without. Her husband Sergei says that it is not death that should be feared, but incompetence. Jules! Says a voice behind me, interrupting my lovelorn referee. Just the man I wanted to talk to. I don't have to turn around to know the voice belongs to my uncle. Nate Billingham, the circus's senior legal counsel. Nate, when not battling animal rights groups, understandably disgruntled ex-employees, or the IRS, enjoys sailing, collecting Chinese silk paintings, and screaming obscenities into his Bluetooth headset. Not now, Uncle Nate, I say, watching Petra perform a stunning 360 in midair. Not now? Like how not now? You wanna know what that engineer did to one of my Jin Fangs? Jin Fang is Uncle Nate's favorite artist. Nate says he's a highly sought-after master of Chinese silk painting, but if you ask me, his stuff looks like it belongs on the walls of a suburban OBGYN clinic. That intern, I'm assuming, is Davis, who I sent to Uncle Nate after he kept bitching about the last intern I gave him, Stephanie. Stephanie's a great kid, but she had apparently texted a friend during Nate's 20-minute tutorial on advanced Chinese silk painting hanging techniques, which of course sent Nate through the roof. I don't even want to know what Davis did. Like I already said, the boy has tossed raw meat to office staff and erected a sideshow tent upside down. Sorry, can't talk, Uncle Nate, I say, 
leaving the big top and heading for the fortune teller's tent to escape what I can already tell is going to become an angry tirade. Maybe tomorrow. Stunning piece! Continues Uncle Nate. Zhang Fang at the pinnacle of his craft. Two blue kingfishers flying amid a stunning backdrop of lotus flowers. You know what two blue kingfishers flying amid a stunning backdrop of lotus flowers symbolizes to the Chinese people? Um... My foot up your ass! That's what it symbolizes to the Chinese people. Know what else it symbolizes? I quicken my pace toward the tent. That goddamn intern's head on a rotating skewer. Ask any Chinaman. In Mandarin and Cantonese, it doesn't matter. Try an obscure regional dialect. F*** if I care. I'm going to marinate that goofy bastard, then slow cook him, then feed him piece by piece to the hyenas. We sold the hyenas years ago, Uncle Nate. To the grizzlies, then! Also sold. That intern's gone, Jules. You hear me? He's gone where his ass is grass. And not just his ass. I see his ass in the circuit grounds, and I'm coming for your ass, kiddo. I don't care if you're my nephew. I don't care if my brother did... Of course, you are adopted. Not that my brother did or your mom didn't. In short, in short a rotating skewer, Jules. A rotating skewer. I finally reach the fortune teller's tent, which, unfortunately, doesn't have a door to slam in Uncle Nate's face. Instead, I can only impotently rustle the canvas flaps. Inside the tent are my two laziest interns, Brad and Jeremy, watching television, and Wanda from Public Relations pretending to film them with a broken Canon HD camcorder. Um, I say, aren't you guys supposed to be... Shh, says Brad. I'm trying to figure out what he's saying. On the TV are a slew of buxom Hispanic women wearing white tank tops and a fat, unattractive man blathering rapid fire while spraying the Latina beauties with a hose. Dude, who cares what he's saying? Says Jeremy. Check out that chick on the far left. Admittedly, I check out the chick on the far left. I care. Says Brad, still focusing on the fat, unattractive man's lips. Do you think I watch Spanish language TV just for the chicks? No, bro. I also watch it for the stories. Unpaid interns are great in the sense that they will perform tasks for free that most of a company's employees won't even perform for a paycheck, but they are not so great in that they often perform these tasks extremely poorly. Even in my intern's case, with their ostensible motivation of competing against each other on a reality TV show, most of them can't hold a candle to the roustabouts they've replaced, the roustabouts who, Lord knows, weren't exactly road scholars themselves. But the thing is, circus work, most work for that matter, isn't really about intelligence or academic background or sparkling letters of recommendation. It's about experience. It's about getting your hands dirty for 10, 20, 30 years. It's doing something wrong again and again until finally, somehow, you're doing it right. But the other thing is, Experience costs money. Why else do you think Johnny the Brick fired all of the circus's most senior performers? The ones who had given their entire lives to the circus. The ones who breathed the circus, who bled the circus, 
the ones who had survived 40-foot plunges and elephant stampedes and panther attacks, but couldn't survive the new efficiencies of a former alternative on-site sewage executive. Dollars and cents, y'all. Our best, longest-tenured, most loyal employees also commanded the highest salaries. And these days, competence, tenure, and loyalty ain't worth camel which, Big Tony tells me, is actually worth quite a lot. The interns shovel it into the backs of pickup trucks for farmers who pay top dollar for natural fertilizer. Brad, Jeremy, I say to the interns, as the craggy-faced man continues to soliloquize and hose down nubile Latinas on the television. If I'm not mistaken, you're supposed to be competing in a double points dung shoveling challenge in the horse stables right now, are you not? Yeah, thing is, Mr. B, we weren't really feeling the horse stables today. Too hot, too smelly in there. It's alright though, we'll come back kids, know what I'm saying? We'll get everybody in the next challenge. Show them what's what. Provide this show with some drama. Shh, says Brad, still intently staring at the craggy-faced man's lips. I think he's saying that the reason he's hosing down all these sexy young women in tank tops is... Uh, hell, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. incompetent. Some are actually quite skilled. My two best interns, Sasha and Dexter, are the brightest and most industrious camel dung shovelers you'd ever hope to meet. Except, of course, as I've inferred from my conversation earlier this morning with Davis, Sasha and Dexter have apparently been mauled by a Bengal tiger. What does that mean, exactly, mauled? It doesn't sound good, but it doesn't sound so bad, either. It's not killed. It's not disemboweled. It's not eviscerated. Marty Silverstein said the word pretty nonchalantly when he said I should thank my lucky stars no paid employee got mauled. Probably it was just a light mauling. If it were anything serious, there would be paramedics racing around, emergency lights flashing, medevac helicopters landing in what used to be the giraffe enclosure. Right? I mean, these are human beings we're talking about. The circus hasn't sunk so low that we'd let two interns get torn apart by a wild jungle predator and then just stand idly by as they bleed to death on our sawdust. Right? 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 I suddenly have a bad feeling and leave the fortune teller's tent to find Doug the big cat trainer as the dripping wet women on television perform some kind of choreographed Afro-Cuban dance.
housed in a menagerie tent just northeast of the Big Top. We have two lions, a Bengal tiger, and a three-legged panther named Eldridge Cleaver. We used to have more. Doug the Big Cat Trainer would recreate iconic dance numbers from West Side Story, The King and I, A Chorus Line, Oklahoma, and Cats, with an ensemble cast of jaguars, cougars, cheetahs, and leopards. But then the Big Cat budget got slashed, and Doug had to focus on starker, sparer works. Currently, his Big Cats perform scenes from Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. I figure if anyone is going to tell me the truth about what the Bengal Tiger did to Sasha and Dexter, it's Doug. Doug is a good, honest man, a man of integrity, of principle. Sure, he loves his big cats, but he's not going to whitewash a mauling just to protect one of his performers. Marty Silverstein, payroll supervisor and part-time lion tamer might, but not Doug. No, I can trust Doug to give me a full, unexpurgated account of what happened to my two best interns. Mauling. The more I say that word in my head, the less I like how it sounds. If Petra wasn't inexplicably shunning me, I'd ask her how to say mauling in Russian. Maybe it sounds better. Maybe in Russian, it doesn't seem so bad. I reach the big top, hear the opening of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3, and skirt the big top's perimeter until I can see the menagerie tent 100 feet ahead of me. Rock 3, Petra's favorite piano concerto, gets fainter and fainter, even though the piece itself is in a slow crescendo. I never listened to classical music until I met Petra. She introduced me not just to the great Russian composers, Mussorgsky, Rachmaninoff, Rimsky-Korsakov, Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, Shostakovich, but also to Bach, Beethoven, Handel, Liszt, and too many more to mention. I used to only listen to 98.3 FM, The Buzz, which claimed to play only the best music from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, i.e. lots of Billy Joel, Holland Oates, Savage Garden, and Journey. Boy was I missing out. How did I not know that music like this existed? The first time Petra played me a recording of Rock 3, she asked me what I thought of its famous key-shredding piano cadenza, and I pointed to a Hagar the Horrible character spitting out pound signs, ampersands, and asterisks. We first made love to a recording of Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition. I looked up Mussorgsky on Wikipedia, and it said he was a member of an elite group of Russian nationalist composers called either The Five or The Mighty Handful. I quite liked that name, The Mighty Handful. It's what I called Petra when we were alone together. I don't listen to Journey or Billy Joel anymore. Like that song, The Piano Man. Billy Joel's not the piano man. Rachmaninoff is the piano man. I approach the menagerie until Rock 3 is just distant noise, obscured by the roar of lions, the conversation of nearby clowns, the hum of portable generators. The clowns discuss last night's episode of America Gets Kicked in the Groin. 
The winning groin kicking was apparently administered to a leading expert on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. I enter the menagerie tent, but Doug the Big Cat Trainer is nowhere to be seen. Instead, there are only the big cats, Muffy and Sunshine the Lions, Eldridge Cleaver the Panther, Mr. Spangles the Bengal Tiger, and Johnny the Brick Colucci, the circus manager, tossing Mr. Spangles a seven-pound beef shank, which the tiger instantly devours. Julio, says Johnny the Brick, his hands greased with animal fat and blood. My esteemed director of interns, how are you today on this fine morning? Johnny the Brick, born in Cleveland, educated out east, dubbed the Donald Trump of alternative on-site sewage disposal, largely for his projects in the Midwest. Why he ever agreed to manage our decrepit discount circus is beyond me. In alternative on-site sewage circles, the man is practically regarded as the messiah. Sewage Today, the industry's top trade publication, has featured him on its cover seven times. But he's here now, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a circus employee willing to compare him to God's only son. Stalin, maybe. A coiled viper. One of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, sure. Of course, Johnny the Brick doesn't think so highly of us, either. He considers us rubes, outcasts, deviants, anachronisms. If only we all thought like him, operated like him, the circus could do what it's meant to do, make obscene amounts of money. Johnny the Brick thinks I'm dead weight. I know this, but adopted or not, I'm a Billingham. What remains of the circus's nepotocracy ensures that I can never be fired. The worst Johnny can do is what I do with my interns, assign me the circus's least desirable tasks, the esteemed director of interns. I tell Johnny I'm doing fine, and he hurls a lamb hawk to the lions. So, Julio, how's it going with the interns? Good, good, I say. Listen. Nate stopped by my office today. We had a little chat. Didn't give a favorable report on one young man, sorry to say. Where's Doug? I say, changing the subject, uninterested in getting into Uncle Nate's asinine complaints. Doug, Doug is, uh, indisposed. Nate said, and now he was a bit hysterical, so I'm not sure I have all the details right, but, uh... Indisposed, I say. What does that mean, indisposed? Johnny the Brick reaches into a plastic bucket and pulls out a pound of ground chuck. Indisposed means... Any questions you have for Doug will have to wait until a later time. Now, allegedly, the young man in question was hanging up some sort of painting. Chinese Chinese silk, I believe it was. Okay, so then maybe you can help me, I say. Do you know anything about the mauling this morning? Johnny tosses the ground chuck to Eldridge Cleaver, who gulps it down within seconds. Mauling? No, I'm sorry. I, I believe you're mistaken. I'd certainly be the first to know if there had been a mauling. Really? Because Marty, Eddie the Torch Swallower, and one of the interns all told me... By mauling? You're referring to this morning's incident with the two young interns, I take it? Yes, exactly. Marty Silverstein told me... And I believe you told one of your interns that the two young interns had been at... What's the phrase at? Voted off. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's correct, but... Then you've answered your own question. 
What? I say. You said it yourself. There was no mauling. Your two interns have been voted off. But I made that up, I say. I said they'd been voted off because they had been mauled, and Marty said... Marty is mistaken. The two interns, they've been voted off. That's the official line on this. I, I certainly appreciate your understanding. Now, as I was saying, the painting in question, I, I believe it featured uh, swallows, a blue jays, some kind of bird. Where are the interns now, I say? Sasha and Dexter, are they at the hospital? Are they here? They're wherever one goes when one is voted off, says Johnny, annoyed. Now, as I was saying, Nate indicated that, that this young man has been given extensive, clear, detailed instructions. Mr. Colucci, they're not dead, are they? I say. Mauled doesn't mean killed, does it? I, I always thought mauled was more like... I don't know. I, I was never too clear Mr. on... Mr. Billiam, says Johnny, abandoning the meat bucket and turning to face me, his expression grave. I don't want to hear that word again. The interns were voted off. Are we clear on this? Let me be clearer. I appreciate what you've done with this internship program during your tenure as director. I always see to it that good results are rewarded, that success is justly compensated. Now, assuming you stay on board with us, assuming these successes continue, I can easily see you uh, a few months, maybe even a few weeks from now, becoming a, a, a vice chairman of strategic initiatives. Now, how does that sound to you? I have absolutely no idea what a vice chairman of strategic initiatives is, I say. You want to know something? Neither do I. But it sounds nice, right? I'll tell you this much. You get a real office, a real desk, a non-leaking roof, your own assistant. Monkey or non-monkey, I say. We'd have to hash out all the details at a later time. But the point is, you scratch our backs, we scratch yours. Capiche? I'm glad we're clear on this now. Happy we've had this little chat. And the internship program, I say. Well, do you have any particularly skilled and industrious interns deserving of promotion? I did have Sasha and Dexter, I say, until they were mo- voted off. Anyone else? There's this girl, Stephanie. She's pretty sharp. Great! Says Johnny, clapping his bloodstained hands together. Then Stephanie will become our new director of interns. So she'll get paid then? I say? Oh, heavens no. It'll be an unpaid directorship, of course. But you said so yourself. Stephanie's a sharp girl. I'm sure she'll understand. Mr. Colucci... The thing is, during a recession, everyone's only concerned about how the recession affects them. Why am I losing my job? Why are my hours being cut? Why is the bank after my house? This is, I think you will agree with me, a bit selfish, a, a bit solipsistic, is it not? Um... I say. Take the Marines, for example. The few, the proud, etc. Does a Marine say, when ordered to lead a frontal assault, why do I have to lead the assault? Why do I have to be the first in line for the enemy's bullets? Screw that. Why don't you lead the frontal assault? I'm going back to base to play Grand Theft Auto V on Xbox. No. He follows his orders. He leads the frontal assault. And why? Is he crazy? Is he high? Does he possess a psychotic wish for death? No. He simply understands that he is part of a team. That, yes, perhaps he may die, but his death is for the good of the team. That, thanks to him, the team will live on. Whereas without him, the team falls. And if the team falls, he falls. Are you following me, Julio? Um, I say... Take 19th century Western philosophy. 
Ever heard of something called utilitarianism? Formulated by this Englishman, Jeremy Bentham. Had his skeleton and head preserved, stuck in his cabinet at some college in London. Kids kept stealing his head, so the college locked up his real head and made a replacement with wax. Anyway, Jeremy Bentham said that what is good is what brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. Think about that. The greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. Is he saying that what is good is what is good for you? No. He's saying maybe what is good is what's miserable for you. Maybe what is good is what sucks for you. Maybe what brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people brings you a pink slip and a foreclosed house and a cancellation of your health insurance. And now, maybe that don't sound so sensible to you. But that's because you're not a philosopher. Now think about it. This Jeremy Bentham? He was a smart guy. They display his skeleton in the cabinet. Think anyone will display your skeleton in the cabinet, Julio? Um, I say... Take basketball. You're familiar with basketball, aren't you? A player sets a pick. Does he score? Literally, no. But maybe his teammate scores. So technically, yes, he scores. His whole team scores. Uh, take football. A lineman executes a kickout block. Does he score? Literally, no. But maybe his team's running back scores. So technically, yes, he scores. They all score. What I'm saying is, maybe in this life, you yourself don't score, but that's not what's important. What's important is, does your team score? And the Bumble and Billingham three-ring discount circus. That's your team. That's all I'm asking. I'm asking, stop always thinking about me, me, me. About that guy, this guy, that intern, this intern. Ask yourself, am I with the occasional necessary sacrifice or sacrifices? Helping the circus to score. Can you do that for me, Julio? Can you help the circus to score? Mr. Spangles eyes me from his cage, hungrily. Yes, Mr. Colucci. I say, great, says Johnny, patting me on the shoulder, leaving a deposit of raw beef on my shirt. I'm glad we're clear on this now. I'm happy we had this little chat. It's past noon. I'm in the portable trailer, roofs leaking, oscillating fans going, damp paperworks fluttering this way and that. Big Tony is gone, off the manila folders, to whereabouts unknown. The oscillating fan blows away a post-it note that says, need more post-it notes. Since my little chat with Johnny the Brick, I've met with all nine remaining interns and informed them that Sasha and Dexter have been voted off. I've told them that a secret celebrity panel has been watching footage of each day's dung shoveling and sawdust lugging and paperwork filing competitions, so they better get their acts together if they don't want to meet a similar fate. No more Spanish-language television in what used to be the fortune teller's tent. No more two-hour lunch breaks at the erotic kosher deli. No more half-assing their big-top rigging their bleacher swiffering, their lunchtime pickups of Johnny the Brick's favorite type of croutons at Crouton Palace. Was I ever tempted, while watching my interns' guileless, impressionable faces, watching my interns nod their heads, hang on my every word, lap up every one of my lies, to speak the truth? To say, hey, 
ask Yip Yip the dog-faced boy if you can see the memory card in his camcorder, or hey, try looking up unpaid interns on imdb.com, or hey, you ever wonder why someone would make a TV show focusing on your performance of routine clerical tasks and your shoveling of wild animals' dung? Of course I was tempted. Again, I'm no saint, but I'm no monster either. But my great-great-grandfather was right. You're either a duper, or you're the duped. And if I don't dupe these kids, Lord knows someone else will gladly dupe them for me. Like it or not, they've got to learn the hard way. And I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. But Johnny the Brick said it himself. I stay on board, and I'm looking at my own office, my own non-leaking roof, my own monkey or possibly non-monkey assistant, vice chairman of strategic initiatives. I still have no idea what that could possibly mean, but it sounds like I'd probably get my own phone extension, get my own letterhead, get enough money and leverage so that one day I could finally get the hell out of this circus and take Petra with me, start a new life, a better life, be happy, be fruitful, and multiply. So I lied. I lied, and I lied, and I lied some more. The interns all applauded, and I thanked them for their time. I'm working on the introduction to my mandatory training course on Big Cat Safety. The course's working title is Apocalypse Meow, 10 Simple Ways to Prevent Workplace Maulings When There's a Knock at the Door. My first thought is, God damn it, what bad news is being delivered to my doorstep now? My second thought is, don't move, keep quiet, maybe it'll go away. But then the knock is accompanied by a voice. Julian! Julian, you're there? It's Petra, my darling, queen of the flying trapeze. Julian! 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 Doors unlocked, I say. Come on in. Petra enters the trailer, still in spandex and sequins. Not all women are meant to wear spandex and sequins. The bearded lady, for instance, briefly tried her hand at the trapeze, and what a disaster that was. But Petra... I mean, Petra would be gorgeous in a sawdust sack, but in spandex... Damn. Those sequined outfits kill me every time. I thought you said you couldn't see me anymore, I say as Petra traverses the trailer's knee-high stacks of manila folders, my own personal labyrinth. I come for the English lesson, says Petra. Here I bring the Sunday funnies. I want to confront Petra. I do. I really do. I want to ask her about this morning, ask her why she said it's over, ask her why she's suddenly all concerned that Sergei is going to drop her 40 feet to her certain death. I don't even think that's legal, performing without a safety net. I remind myself to write on a post-it note to remind myself to look into that at a later time. But I look at my agenda, and I've got to replace the two mauled-slash-voted-off interns, finalize the work schedules of the nine interns who still remain, complete the necessary paperwork to order some seal coating to fix my trailer's roof, find out why I never received last week's paycheck, perform some snow cone cart maintenance as a favor to Bruce and concessions, and finish Apocalypse Meow, 10 Simple Ways to Prevent Workplace Maulings Within 24 Hours. I just don't have the energy to fight with Petra right now, to press her, to 
doggedly elicit the truth. So instead, I pull up Big Tony's chair for her. I knock over some manila folders to clear her a path. I remove the least important paperwork from my desk to make room for yesterday's funnies. I have a football, Charlie Brown, reads Petra. Good, I say. Why don't you practice a few play skits? I'll hold the ball and you come running and kick it. Good grief. Why he says he's Charlie Brown, good grief? Because every time he tries to kick the ball, Lucy pulls it away at the last second and Charlie Brown falls over, see? I point to the end of the strip when, sure enough, Lucy pulls the ball away and Charlie Brown whiffs and lands on his ass with an ah and a whump. Push, boy! Every time this happens to Charlie Brown when he runs at the ball? Yes, I say. Petra shakes her head. Charlie Brown, he is stupid, no? He even says here, what do you think I am, stupid? Sort of, I say, except every strip he's hoping that this time he's finally going to kick the ball. But he never kicked the ball. Actually, he did. He did kick it once. Okay, and then what happened? What do you mean, I say? He kicked the ball, okay. Everything is perfect now, Charlie Brown. He is not any more stupid. What he do now? Um, I say... He falls so many times, and for why? One time he kicked the ball? Charlie Brown, he is, um, we say in Russian, durak, a fool. Better he not try. Better he say, Lucy, you are a stupid bitch. I do not run at the ball. I do not kick the ball no more. I fall down on the ass. Why he even try? I love you, I say. Petra glares at me. Please, I come for the English lesson only. Sorry, I say. Understood. Please continue. Marmaduke in Gone to the Dogs. It's just that, Petra, big things are happening to me. Things are changing for me. Do you understand? I know I'm not much now, but in the future, I'll be... Oh, Marmaduke, the mailman's kneecap is not a milk bone. What I'm trying to say is... I don't know how to put this. Woof, 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 woof. There were an equivalent situation in the Sunday Funnies. The family circus by Bill Keen. Okay, I'm trying to say that there's no future here, that the circus is dying. I try to pretend that it's not, but. Mommy says heaven is a great big hug that lasts forever. They're gonna make me vice chairman of strategic initiatives. That means. I'm not exactly sure what that means. It means soon I'll be able to get a place of my own. You can live with me there, you can leave Sergey. Don't you love me more than you love Sergey? Barney Google and Snuffy Smith. Petra, I've become someone I don't want to be. Don't you feel that way too? I mean, I'm no saint, but I'm no monster either. Except lately... Petra, are you familiar with 19th century Western philosophy? How about the Marines? How about basketball? Hank Ketchum's Dennis Dimenez. I love you, Petra. I love you. I'd say it in Russian, but... Why haven't I ever bothered to learn how to say I love you in Russian? Hey, Mr. Wilson. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this place. And I want you to come with me. Not, you know, now, per se, but... How much of this are you understanding? 50%? 60%? Do you need me to use smaller words, or should I just speak more slowly? Petra taps angrily on the face of Dennis the Menace. Julian, look again! Look what happened to poor Mr. Wilson. Why, Julian? Why, Dennis? He is always a menace. Why? 
I look at this trip, Dennis the Menace holding a trip wire, sending Mr. Wilson tumbling down his front steps into a large pool of mud. I look at Petra, the fan disheveling her hair, the roof leaking onto her lap, the light from my desk lamp catching her sequins, causing them to glint on and off as she shifts in her seat. I don't know, Petra, I say. I don't know why Dennis is a menace. Maybe... But I let my voice trail off, fade off into the whir of the oscillating fan, let whatever lie I was going to tell remain incomplete. Hagar the Horrible by Dick Brown. Men, today we will fight the biggest battle of our lives. Good, I say. That's good, Petra. Now, what happens next? Had some problems keeping girls in the past Somehow I'm certain she's the one who will last She makes no promises, she lays out the deal And still I tell myself this love is for real I Okay. 